0: Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the PhD cast by the CBIS GPA. I'm Micah and today I'm joined by my co-hosts Megan, Ahmad, and Nate, along with special guest, Professor of Biomedical Engineering, Dr. Eric Ledet. Dr. Ledet, we're really excited to have you. Could you tell us a little bit about your career and your projects in industry?
1: Yeah, thank you very much. I I really appreciate the invite to uh, participate um, in the the podcast. Um, I've enjoyed listening to many of the other sessions that you guys have done, so I I really appreciate it. Um, So I'm a professor in biomedical engineering at RPI, where I have been for the last uh, 16 years. Uh, Prior to that, uh, I worked in orthopedic surgery at uh, Albany Medical Center Hospital, Albany Medical College, and ran the research lab there for orthopedics. I did that for nine years. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. So my, my career, my research has primarily been viewed through a mechanical engineer's lens, so to speak. I earned that from the university of Arizona, which is where I grew up. And then I came to upstate New York cause I heard that the weather was so much nicer <laughs> up there than Southern Arizona. So I came up to, uh, to upstate New York to do graduate school at RPI. And so I have my master's and PhD in biomedical engineering from RPI. And I think, um, when I was working at Albany Med, uh, we were, it uh, was very translational research, uh, you know, meaning work that was in a very short period of time was expected to go into the, the clinic. Mm. And so a lot of the work that we were doing was working with industry. And so although I was in, uh, on the academic side, I was working with teams who were product development, research and development teams in industry, and that included oftentimes people who were very concerned about the regulatory aspects of what we were doing, Mm -hmm. uh, all medical devices related to orthopedic surgery. So people who are interested in the regulatory aspects, people who are interested in marketing, mm-hmm. um, people who are interested in the, in the quality you know, part of things. And so even though I was the academician on a team, um, got to see what a lot of those different roles were and sort of what a, a team doing product development was, uh, was comprised of. Mm-hmm. And then uh, probably about maybe around 20 years ago, around the year 2000, I started doing some consulting work and first did consulting with some of those larger mm-hmm. companies Helping, again, with uh, primarily research, but being part of these teams. And then ultimately started working with medium-sized and then, and then later on doing consulting for startups as mm-hmm. well. And that largely kind of took the, the stigma, if you will, out of startup companies. I right. learned how you actually start a startup and mm-hmm. what's involved and how important it is to, for example, find a good lawyer and <laughs> right. things like that. And uh, so while I've had my entire career in academics, I have gotten a lot of experience and exposure in industry. And then ultimately, um, I guess about eight, nine years ago now, got involved with my first startup where I was a principal in that, Mm -hmm. and now have been involved in uh, three different uh, medical device uh, startups over the last, uh, whatever it's been, eight or 10 years or so.
2: Wow.
0: So now, just to jump off of your point there, you mentioned needing a lawyer. <laughs> I, as a PhD student, so far, have never, never needed a lawyer in my life. I hope so. so. <laughs> where where am I going to start to need a lawyer, do you think?
1: You know, it's, I, I think that um, you know, a lot of it depends on the path that you take with your career. Mm -hmm. Right. So obviously the world in academics, if you choose an academic career, again, I started mine working in a hospital Mm -hmm. in a clinical environment. Yeah. That's a little bit different than being in a university, but still an academic career versus going into industry and let's say working for a huge company in a huge corporation Mm -hmm. versus going to work in a startup. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the environment and the skills that are needed, you know, those are all biomedical engineer, you know, realms that a biomedical engineer can go into. Mm But the day-to-day work, the skill set, and the interactions with people who are, let's say, non-biomedical engineers, that Mm. will vary from scenario to scenario. Right. Mm. In the startup world, you know, it's really important to have a lawyer involved immediately. Just as an example if you're going to form a company, you have to incorporate. Mm-hmm. And in order to incorporate, yeah. although, you know, you can go online and, you know, find forms yourself, there are certain things that you really want to get right, because <laughs> if you don't get it right, it can become very problematic later mm. on, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, whereas if you go to work in academics, um, you know, you're going to have a, a job offer, a contract. That's largely going to be standard that, you know, whatever hundreds of faculty members before you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. have had a similar or identical contract, um, Maybe you want to have an attorney take a look at that, mm-hmm. but largely interactions with attorneys will be fewer and, and uh, farther between. Mm-hmm. In an academic environment, you may be, uh, um, become part of uh, uh, a contract, you know, with an outside organization, mm-hmm. in which case you may sit down with attorneys there. And then, of course, there's the whole realm of intellectual property. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. no matter mm-hmm. which one of those <laughs> scenarios you're working in, if you're developing something that is potentially patentable, mm-hmm then working very closely with intellectual property attorneys is, is uh, you know, part of that world and can be very beneficial um, to doing that. So, so a lot of it depends on the direction that one takes in their career, uh, and that's, you know, that's just lawyers, you know, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. sort of one uh, set of professional, um, you know, expertise outside bi- biomedical engineering that a biomedical engineer may be dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So,
3: if you don't mind me going off of that for a second, uh, academics are typically viewed uh, as, you know, working in a silo. So, every lab or every group or anything like that is typically, like, you just, you do your own work, you go home, and that's, like, the general, like, the research skill that you develop tends to be limited to that. How do you develop that skill set to be able to talk to a lawyer, a surgeon, a investor of some sort? Like, where, where does that start? When and where does that start, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. And I think, you know, academics is, especially lately, right, meaning in the last, let's say, the last five or ten years, Mm -hmm. you need to develop your own expertise and your own niche, Mm -hmm. right? You have to distinguish yourself from everybody else. Okay, Mm -hmm. if you're in academics, you're going to be writing grant proposals, and you have to distinguish yourself from everybody else who's competing for that same proposal. And so that has a tendency, I think, to drive faculty members towards developing their own expertise, their own identity, and in your words, their own silo, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's a part of it, right? You have to have that. You have to say, this is my territory, (laughs) and I'm the best one. (laughs) I'm the king of this territory or whatever. But I think at the same time, right, no longer is that sufficient to be really competitive Mm -hmm. in, for example, getting a big grant. Mm. And so typically what that means is that, I might have my silo and my expertise, but I've got to be able to reach out from my kingdom. We're going with the (laughs) metaphor here. And I've got to be able to reach across the river and talk to the person in the next kingdom Mm -hmm. and figure out where the common ground is, where the common goals are. That's very important. Mm -hmm. And try to collaborate. And now most grants that are awarded do not have single investigators. Almost all of right. them have multiple investigators. Mm-hmm. And importantly, having expertise in just one area is probably not going to be the way to, to be most competitive. Mm-hmm. Right. It's bringing in people that have complementary Expertise in order to say, look, we've put together this rock star team, mm-hmm. and this team is what we're going to go out and compete with, rather mm-hmm. than just a, an individual rock star trying to go out and compete with everybody else. And
3: that goes on an international level, too. Sorry for cutting you off, but it's, it's not just at the United level of the United States, but it's also at like a multinational
1: Yeah, for sure. Because I think, that, <clears throat> I, I, th- I think the answer to that question is it depends, right? Mm-hmm. In some ways, having international collaborations can be very beneficial. Right. It gives mm-hmm. you uh, opportunity to um, address issues that might be multicultural, mm-hmm. that might be international problems, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that might be large problems outside of the United States, for example, mm-hmm. in developing parts of the world, um, humanitarian work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. However, there are also funding agencies that are funded by the federal government, right. that are funded mm-hmm. by U.S. tax dollar money, yes. and those, the money, for obvious reasons, uh, the goal is to keep that money spent in the United States. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that can, can depend. But it definitely the collaborations and the expertise, I think that there's very little reason to restrict that just to domestic. I right. think there's definitely opportunities. There are people, a lot of people who are very smart and have strong expertise Outside of the United States, that might be relevant to one's mm-hmm. own research. Mm-hmm. So reaching out, and in most conferences now, you know, you go to a national yeah. meeting, yeah. and it's not a national meeting anymore. They're all <laughs> international. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There are people, you know, coming from all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of different opportunities, different levels for collaboration within one's own institution, across institutions within one's own country, mm-hmm. and then international, you know, from around the world.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I had a question actually related to what Micah was asking, but do you remember the first time you had to speak to a lawyer through one for one of your companies? Is there a story associated or like, you know, what was that first <laughs> interaction like where you're like, I need to, you know, approach an attorney and, you know, discuss something. And was that kind of daunting because you hadn't done it before? Hmm.
1: Yeah. So I think, I think my first experiences in working with attorneys were in the academic environment. Oh, okay. And okay. as I said, early in my career, mm-hmm. I did a lot of research that was relevant to industry. And so there were a lot of agreements and contracts with industry. Mm -hmm. And I can remember um, getting involved uh, in one of those discussions. Most of them, you know, pretty much the company would say, here's the agreement that we want to have. I would send that over to the appropriate, you know, administrative Mm -hmm. office on campus or at the hospital. And somebody there would review it and they would have all these red lines and I didn't pay too much attention and then sent (laughs) it off. (laughs) And and actually just as an aside, you know, one of the things I think that's very interesting, right, and, and part of what we're gonna discuss today is about communications. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, how do you learn lawyer speak? Mm -hmm. How do you learn legal speak? Mm -hmm. You know, whatever. And that's a whole different language. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so those first, you know, how many ever contracts that came sort of through my, I was going to say across my desk, but it was literally through my inbox. Right. (laughs) And I passed along. I didn't pay too much attention. Mm -hmm. And then what I started doing is I started paying attention. Right. And, you know, a five-page legal contract is not too bad. When you get to like a 25-page right. legal contract, I recommend that if you have insomnia, because <laughs> <laughs> that can help. But there are certain, you know, sort of boilerplate things, standard language that's in there that you don't really worry about too much. But then I noticed that there are trigger points. There are mm. things that one side's lawyers would flag and try to push back against the other side's mm. lawyers. And there is where I started paying attention. Sure, okay. Yeah. And then you sort of learn what's important and what's not. Mm -hmm. Um, When you get to the end of an agreement and and maybe there's a dispute or there's a miscommunication or whatever, and then it reverts back to the legal agreement, then you're like, oh, that's why it's important to have lawyers. Mm, And so after doing that a number of times, even something like a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Which all of us will see regardless of Mm -hmm. which path we Mm -hmm. go down. A non-disclosure agreement, there are certain provisions in a non-disclosure agreement that you say, fine, it's fine, I will sign it. There are other ones that after you've gone through a number of them, yeah. Or after you've talked to a lawyer, you learn what some key legal terms are mm-hmm. in there. For example, the duration of the agreement. Sure. Mm-hmm. If right. you ever see an agreement that says the duration of this agreement is 100 years, it turns out that that will never hold up in court. Right. And I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> so I'm not going to get into the details of that, but you know, you look for things like that like how long right. do I need to be responsible for maintaining the confidentiality? 2 mm-hmm. years, 3 years, 5 years a hundred years, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so going back and forth, looking at those agreements, you start to pick up the language, learn what stuff Uh means. I was never shy about asking questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I remember going in to answer your question to a negotiation. Yeah. All right. And it was going to be the university and the company going Mm -hmm. in to negotiate some of these terms. And I was really uptight, you know, yeah. about this. And I, I, really wanted the, I really wanted things to work out yeah. because it would benefit my, my research and my yeah. relationship with the company. And I remember going over and, and uh, sitting down and, and my team had a couple minute strategy discussion, you know, before getting on the call and I'm like really nervous and everything like that. And then the lawyer's just like, well, on page seven of the contract, can we change this, you know, term to that? And the other side was like, uh, all right, yeah, I guess we can do that. And then, you know, and there were things that were, Pretty easy for one side to concede, and there were some things that were not so easy. Mm. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And I had a couple of cases where, after going back and forth, we came to an agreement. I also, unfortunately, had a couple of cases that went back and forth, and there was no agreement. Oh, really? And ultimately, the company said, you know what? We can't come to an agreement, so we're going to pull our sponsorship. Mm. Wow. And it's disappointing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think the probably the, the most important thing that I learned and that I would recommend to a young person who's starting their career is going into um, new employment. Understand what your institution or your company's IP policy yeah. is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have a startup company, um, which I'm happy to talk about. And I started that with two other people whose primary appointments, all three of us were in academics at mm-hmm. three different institutions. So my institution at that time, RPI, The IP policy basically is um, anything that you develop using university resources Mm -hmm. belongs to the university. Mm -hmm. Yep. My partner, uh, who's in a medical center, his institutional policy was anything you develop belongs to the hospital. Mm. And yeah. <laughs> their justification is that they create the intellectual environment mm-hmm. that allows these things to happen. Wow. And my third partner, his university, which is not a, a tier one uh, research tier one university. Right. They didn't really care. They're like, "Yo, you have IP, you know, you take and do whatever you <laughs> want mm-hmm. with it. That's wow. nice. We, we will help to promote it, you know, or yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, that's nice. So three very different policies <laughs> right. for three partners in the same um, company. Mm. Yeah. So, so going into circling back, it, I wasn't really surprised when those negotiations broke down right because I knew what my university's IP policy was and while I was hoping selfishly that that there would be an exception made right. to that, it got to a point where the university would have really had to have um, sort of uh, uh, buck to their own, IP policy mm. in order to to make this contract right. happen. So, yep. so I was nervous going into those discussions. Largely, I sat there quietly for the first several. <laughs> and again, then you sort of figure out the language. Right. You figure out what's important to the attorneys. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, I can say for the last several years, I'm not quiet when I go into <laughs> <laughs> discussions like that. You, you know, once you, once you understand the language. Then it's it's like a maturity thing where you you know, my fear of asking a really stupid question or of sabotaging myself. Right. That diminished a lot. Okay. Mm-hmm. And although I'm not a lawyer and there's still a lot of things that I don't understand about mm-hmm. contract law, I feel comfortable enough that I'm not gonna ask a really stupid question right. and that I may have something to offer to the negotiations. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Okay. Huh. I feel like that's a lot of that stuff is really daunting from a grad student perspective that is interested in going into industry, but not necessarily doing industry research. So that, for example, me, I do want to go into industry, but I don't necessarily want to be on the bench. So you know, looking into more consulting or venture capital, but having absolutely zero background in it, other than you know, hearing from faculty like Dr. Ledet talking about their experiences. So I don't know if you have any suggestions for grad students that are interested in that side of you know research and biotech commercialization on you know how to kind of pick up that lingo or pick up some of the skill set needed and that goes back to our communication point right so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah yeah that's it's a really good point um and i think that some of that stuff can be scary just because it's unknown yeah mm-hmm. you know exactly. um and and i think that Luckily, um, and I I actually think COVID helped this a little bit, you know, there are, for example, um, startup groups or entrepreneurship groups. Mm -hmm. And so for someone who may be interested in going down the path of entrepreneurship or even going into a VC and Mm -hmm. being an analyst, you know, or something like that, that um, a lot of these organizations will have, you know, it used to be generally they're not weekly, maybe monthly monthly get togethers, mm-hmm. most of those over the last year, year and a half or so because of COVID have all been virtual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are recorded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's opportunities to go and listen into some of these discussions. Yeah. You know, some of them are uh, on very specific topics. So for example, I went to one that was not the most interesting, <laughs> <laughs> that was on um, ins- liability insurance for a clinical trial. Huh, All right. Okay. So my startup company is about to start a clinical trial, right? right yeah. Which is, you know, very intimidating, exciting, super exciting, yeah, and sure. intimidating at the same time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we need to know about is having liability insurance, right. so that if something goes bad, you know, with the patient, what do you do? Yeah. Well, I'm a biomedical engineer. I must have missed the day in class that we talked <laughs> about, you know, clinical trial liability insurance. <laughs> so, you know, there recently there was a seminar that was very specifically on that topic. Mm, All right. Okay. So again, maybe not the most exciting topic, but yeah and, and I think that, after going through so uh in our local community here in, in upstate New York, there are a couple of organizations mm-hmm. um uh including r p i that has the the um severino center the the yeah. entrepreneurship center here mm-hmm. um and they have seminar series and speakers yeah. come in and events. And it's, that is a very, I think, easy, sort of non-intimidating, non-threatening way yeah. to start to talk to people mm-hmm. in all these different roles. Mm-hmm. Right. And you will have people there who are, let's say, principals in a startup. You'll have mm-hmm. people there who are investors. Right. Mm-hmm. You'll have people there who are service providers. For example, a manufacturer right. might show up there looking to make connections to help drum up business for the manufacturing company mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, In the medical world, if you find one's startups that are specific to medical, you might have regulatory and quality people Mm -hmm. that are there as well. Right. And these are all, and I found, you know, circling back to the topic on communication, all of these people with their different expertise, they all have their own language. Right, yeah. They (laughs) all have their own acronyms. Oh, if there's one thing in the English language that we could get rid of, it would be acronyms. (laughs) Acronyms. I hate acronyms. Uh, And there are so many of them. You know, think about in our world for medical devices the regulatory. I mean, regulatory is a whole different language. Whether you're working in an industry, big company, whether you're working in a startup, Mm -hmm. and if you're doing something that's translational in academics, knowing and understanding what these regulatory terms mean Mm -hmm. and being able to talk to people, even if it's not talking directly to the FDA, Mm -hmm. being able to talk to people who are regulatory experts, that's a whole separate language also. That's true. And again, getting involved in some So if through the university, there are seminar speakers that are come in that that, that come in who have these different expertises. If there are courses that mm-hmm. are taught, where they have seminar speakers that come in or guest lecturers come in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a time not only to go in and listen yeah. to start to understand the lingo, but then also to make that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the first time you're trying to get into a regulatory mm-hmm. world, you can say, oh, I met that speaker who came in two years ago. She said I could reach out to her, right. and yeah, I have right. her email address. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you send a very, you know, you just sort of lob a very benign email <laughs> over. Yeah. And it's a good way non-threatening way to start to to learn these things Mm -hmm. yeah it's more than any one person you know can learn certainly overnight of course yeah Yeah. but if you're gonna if you're gonna play in these domains Mm -hmm. it's important to know the different roles and to at least be able to communicate with those people Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. yeah and and i was lucky i started my career uh working in with a group of surgeons Mm -hmm. yeah and so, the very first language, so right. to speak, that I got to learn outside of engineering was medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you can talk to a physician and you know the difference between anterior and posterior yep. and proximal and distal, mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference in the ability <laughs> to communicate with them. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Talking to a regulatory expert and knowing the difference between a class 1, class 2, class 3 medical right. device or mm-hmm. 510K pathway or whatever, that makes a huge difference mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the ability to communicate with them. Talking to a patent attorney mm-hmm. and knowing what prior art means yep. and, you know, and, and how to understand a claim in a patent. Mm. Yep. those are all things that can make those discussions either am i an expert in any of those things absolutely not right <laughs> yeah. but i have tried to in mm-hmm. some cases i think i've succeeded in some cases i have a way to go mm-hmm. i've tried to raise my understanding and my ability to communicate with those people enough mm-hmm. so that i can interact with them mm-hmm. i can capitalize on their expertise Without having a big gap between mm-hmm. us, right? So no big moat between castles, right? <laughs> hey, we have a bridge Back to between the two castles. Yeah, that was a terrible metaphor, but yeah. we got to keep it up. Yeah, we're going there. We're going there.
2: Um, I I had one that I've been wanting to ask you. It it could be kind of a spicy question, I guess. But um, as <laughs> as as someone, you know, you're in academia but you also, have, you also work in industry and you also have worked on the clinical side and you have connections with um, hospitals. You know, I feel like in academia, there's kind of a stigma against research or like grad students going into industry. Maybe not as much anymore, but there definitely was a, a while ago. And has it been difficult for you to work in all of those sectors? And has there ever been any issues?
3: Resistance.
2: Or resistance, exactly. <laughs>
3: that is spicy. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: so I will answer your question. Let me tell you a story first, if, okay. if you will allow me. So yeah. my first two PhD students, uh, we'll call them Glenn and Mary Beth. Okay. All right. <laughs> so Glenn came uh, and joined me to do his PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, he had, uh, after his bachelor's, had worked for a year in okay. industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told me from day one, I want to earn a PhD, and when I get done, I'm going into industry. Okay. Yeah. All right. And for five years, he told me, I'm going into industry, I'm going into industry, I'm going into industry. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Mary Beth came in and she told me, I love to tutor. I did it when I was an undergrad. Okay. I, lo- I want to be a TA as much as I can as a grad student. Both my parents are high school teachers. Oh. Oh, wow. She's like, I definitely want to go into academics. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm, was yeah. it. And so the whole I mean, the entire time, right? For five years, I heard from <laughs> Mary Beth. I want to be a professor. For five years, I heard from Glenn. I want to go into industry. And you know the way that the story is going yep. in right. the end, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they flipped. They flipped. <laughs> and Glenn ended up becoming a professor and Mary Beth went to work for a big medical devices company. And, mm. and so um, from my perspective as a professor, if I put my professor hat on, I have always tried to make sure that my students, when they get done with their PhD, they have enough domain expertise, enough depth of knowledge mm-hmm. so that they can compete with Mm -hmm. anybody for grants, they have enough depth of knowledge so they could step into a classroom Mm -hmm. and they could teach the stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Right, And so they truly are experts, but also so that they have enough practical knowledge Mm -hmm. to be able to apply what they're doing and actually, I'll use a patent term here, reduce it to practice. In Mm -hmm. other words, it's not just Mm -hmm. theoretical stuff, it's knowledge that they can apply as well. Mm -hmm. And so there was no bias towards Mary Beth to making her more theoretical, there was no bias towards Glenn making him more um, practical. And in the end, both of them were able to to manage that. Mm. So I, I think, you know, if you look at Th- there, are, there are definitely faculty members, there are definitely professors all over the place yeah. who feel like if a student, a PhD student of theirs does not go into academics, that it's been a failure. Mm-hmm. Right. It's been yeah. their own failure, yeah. Yeah. the student's failure or whatever. Right. Um, and then there are those, and I put myself into this category, who want to prepare a PhD student to do whatever it is that they want to do mm-hmm. in the next phase of their life. Be that industry, be it academics, be it a hospital, be it working in a national lab or right. something like mm-hmm. that. So I think that what I would suggest for anybody who is trying to decide on what lab they want to go into is to think a little bit about the career path. Now, in Glenn and Mary Beth's case, they had thought about it a lot <laughs> and right. they both ended up switching, but to, to really understand what your advisor's expectations are mm-hmm. and what their goals are for you mm-hmm. um, right. before you make a final decision yeah. on right. what lab you want to get into. Yeah. yeah. And, and really, what is their emphasis you know, going to be uh, mm-hmm. for you? Mm-hmm. So do I think that there's a stigma? I think by and large, no. Okay. Um, but there are pockets of faculty who yeah. may be a little bit more, I'll say, traditional yeah, in what they think is uh, what a Ph.D., uh, in our case, Ph.D. engineer or scientist should do with mm-hmm. their education.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I, I kind of a follow the question for some of the last comments that we were talking about. You know, we're talking about communication, communicating with people in different realms. I guess um, I think from from a grassroots perspective, you know, we're trying to build some of those um, some of those connections with people, those relationships, and stuff like that. How do you go about building relationships with people in other sectors, and then how do you maintain those relationships? And, you know, to the point that you can be like, oh, if I have a question, I know I can ask this person.
2: That's a great question. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that, that's a really good question. It's a really good question. Um, and I have a few different strategies. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say I have an answer. Sure. Right. Because yeah. that is it's, it's a tough question. It's yeah. broad. It takes time. Right. What mm-hmm. you're talking about mm-hmm. is you're talking about building a network. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I think that one of the great things is that as a student you have that student card that you can play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that the minute that you graduate <laughs> it stops <completely. laughs> Yeah, it stops completely. <laughs> Movie prices are full price again right? oh, wow. <laughs> you that ten percent discount on Apple. <laughs> so I think I think as a student, right, when you if you sort of if you're it, what I would you know the way that I would approach this is to say if you're sort of humble mm-hmm. you can approach all kinds of different people in any type of networking environment I'll explain what I mean by that in a second mm-hmm. and if you start off with you know hey, my name is Eric and I'm a student mm-hmm. right immediately most of the time there are exceptions to this but most of the time, the way that you're going to get um, a response back is going to be someone who's maybe empathetic, someone who is trying to support you, mm-hmm. someone who's willing to be a little bit more open, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, for example, if you go to a conference, right? And so that can be at your own institution if there's any type of get-together mm-hmm. where you start talking to other faculty members, for example, it can be at a regional meeting. Most regional meetings, at least in, in our field, are uh, student-centric. They're yeah. really all about giving students experiences, uh, making presentations, presenting mm-hmm. posters, mm-hmm. things like that. Or if you go to a national meeting or international meeting, um, you know, if you have a means of getting there, I would participate in every networking event, every coffee break. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're an introvert, you know, go get yourself a whole bunch of caffeine and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, step up and uh, go introduce yourself yeah. to some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you make, get an opportunity to make a presentation or to present a poster, that's an even better opportunity to do it. Right. And if you do get that opportunity, after your presentation is done and you come down off of the podium... I would linger for as long as possible in the front of the room because a lot of people will come up and talk to you. Right. Yeah. If not, then I would suggest you go and you find other people who are at the conferences, someone who's maybe uh, that you have a specific interest in, whose poster or presentation you thought was particularly interesting, Mm -hmm. And go and talk to them. Talk to them about what your interests are. Talk to them about how did you end up doing what you're, I don't know, ask them anything, you know, (laughs) and just strike up a conversation, ask them if they have anybody else that they can introduce you to. Mm -hmm. Right. And then what I would do is I would follow up with those people. All right. Now, here's the caveat. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting at a table once having a conversation with a colleague, and I'm listening as this conversation is going on at the next table. (laughs) with a a big wig, you know, in the society, a real uh, pillar in the society, and a couple of grad students, I don't know if they're postdocs or grad students or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they introduced themselves, and there was a pleasant conversation going on, and then they literally started making demands. So will you do this, and will you do that, and can you do that for me? (laughs) And I thought to myself, that's not the way that you want to establish this relationship, right? Mm -hmm. What you want to do is establish some credibility, have some discussions with this person, Mm -hmm. and not make it, at least not make it obvious that you are just trying to utilize this as a connection, Mm -hmm. right? Is there legitimately some synergy there, something that you can offer to them in exchange for what they may give back to you, Mm all right? So I think that in our field, going to a conference or conferences and having these discussions, getting introductions from your advisor, getting introductions from other faculty members, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. so that you get introduced to their networks, and then some of the stuff that we were talking about before, going to other local community events, such mm-hmm. as startups, like what we were, were talking mm-hmm. about before, startup events and right. things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's opportunities. If you're a shy, reserved person, and, and I am not an extrovert, I would infinitely rather get up in front of a room of 1,000 people and make a presentation than to go into a room and say, oh, you got to go network, you know, during this coffee <laughs> I break. Would, I yeah. would agree yeah. with that. Yeah. But what I've learned is that those networking sessions are actually super important, mm-hmm. right? And um, so, you know, as an engineer, you have, to, <laughs> you have to try to come out of the shell and, uh, and just talk to people. And I think, you know, what I have found is that um, at least in a local community, like mm-hmm. here in Albany and upstate New York, that um, it's a relatively small community. Yeah. And so you'll say, oh, you know, hello, Ahmad, uh, you know, nice to meet you. And, oh, Ahmad is friends with with Megan. And then, you know, you find out later on, <laughs> I met some guy named Mike, and he's also friends with Megan. And then, <laughs> and then you get a little bit of credibility, right. you know, and, and then you start to people know who you are. Yeah. And I think that's how you kind of grow your network. So mm-hmm. I would say be bold mm-hmm. in engaging people. But I would say be very, very modest and slow about making demands right. of them because that can be a real turnoff. Yeah. Yeah. There's
3: something I also want to add to that I'm just thinking of if you're also trying to build your network, don't like you also need to expect that you someone will also reach out to you. Yeah. So I think the courtesy that you're expecting that you want other people to show you, you should also show to those mm-hmm. who, like you in a way, pay it forward to mm-hmm. those people mm-hmm. as well. And that's how you, you know, you would build a Absolutely. Like a good, yeah. strong network, I Yeah,
1: think. absolutely. If they ever ask you for something, can you send me, oftentimes it'll be send me a copy of your resume or your mm-hmm. CV, right? You should have one, you know, handy and ready yeah. to go. So you yes. respond back to them right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right, And then a few mm-hmm. weeks later, maybe you reach out to them, you know, with a question or, hey, do you know this person? Can you introduce me? Mm-hmm. So it's a gradual process. It's a mm-hmm. gradual process. But I think it's one if if during graduate school, if you have the opportunity to go to some conferences and, and not everybody does, you know, right. depends on, on mm-hmm. funding, you know, and things like that and whether you get papers accepted. But I think that those are really good times to go and really try to, to network. Mm-hmm. And at some conferences, it may be all academicians at other conferences. There may be an industry component to it mm-hmm. um, yeah. as well.
2: Yeah. Hmm. I, I have, I guess one kind of last question. Um, I want to say, Dr. Ledet is one of the faculty pe- fa- faculty members in our department that is known to be an extremely great teacher. Mm. Like we all love taking his classes, and he, I think he does a really great job of putting education for students at the forefront. Um, and now we were talking about right before we started recording this episode about you know education for entrepreneurship and um, innovation. Um, and I know some of the goals for our club, the SEVIS GPA, is try to encourage grad students to think about more than just their research and think about where their career could go, and you know, we're setting up a series of events for that. But our issue is getting grad students to engage in that and you know, take that time out of their research to A, build a network or attend some of these events that, like, that you've suggested. Um, what do you have to say to grad students like that?
1: <laughs> How do you solve our problem, of <laughs> <laughs> that? <Libette? laughs> oh no. So first of all, Megan, thank you for your kind words. A plus for you today. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> um, I think that um, a lot of the attitude that a graduate student would have is going to be driven by the attitude that their advisor has.
2: Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If, for example, what an advisor is really expecting of a grad student is the number of papers that you publish at the end or the mm-hmm. impact factor of a particular journal article or something like mm-hmm. that, that's a very different goal, for example, than saying, what is the value of your work? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say in term, we're biomedical engineers, right? So what is the value of your work with respect to how it's going to contribute to human health? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, for example, I became an engineer so that I could actually make stuff. right. I became a biomedical engineer so that I could actually help people with right. the stuff that I made. Mm-hmm. So if I publish a paper, okay, maybe that gets read by somebody who you know, does something else and, and that uh, can help to have a influ- positive influence on human health. Mm-hmm. But to me, doing the research and then writing a paper at the end, that is a stepping stone mm. to then continue on with the ultimate goal which is to contribute to human health. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if research is a stepping stone, and that's largely how I have always done my work and run my group in academics, um, if research is a stepping stone, then the question is, well, what comes after mm-hmm. that yeah. stepping stone? Yeah. And what I found is that oftentimes I'll go to a conference And I will look at a a poster or something like that and I'll be, wow, this is really interesting. And I'll say to the, to the author, you know, the person standing next to the poster, what is the clinical application of this? Mm -hmm. And it's not so much if I get a response back and they say, you know, I don't know, you know, this is just (laughs) basic research. That's, that's okay. But when they look at me and they don't even understand what I'm asking, mm -hmm, that to me is something that I have a hard time comprehending Mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. And, um, So so I think that to get a perhaps a student that might be very focused on today's results in the lab Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and get them thinking is to say, you know, why are why are you doing this? Yeah. What comes after the research that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And if they say more research, and you say, okay, well what comes after that? More yeah. research. Well eventually <laughs> <laughs>
2: there can't be any more. <laughs>
1: yeah. Or eventually you have to get to a point, or at least again, this is this is my goal and every, everybody is different. Mm-hmm. But it's to get to a point where that research allows you to then actually answer a question mm-hmm. and do something practical with that mm-hmm. answer. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. where, you know, my my startup companies that I've been involved with that has been the manifestation of research, where then we take a, a technology, a concept, an idea, some result, whatever it is, and then we actually figure out how to reduce that to practice, right. make a, you know, try to productize yeah. what the research was. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It may be hard to look forward if you're very early in grad school right. and, and see what all those steps mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it, again, is, goes back to the advisor, and if the advisor says, look, we are w- the purpose of this research is to address this clinical problem mm-hmm. this clinical issue then as a grad student i want my grad students to always be focused on the clinical problem right yeah. not so much what today's data shows because that mm-hmm. is a mere step right yeah. to to address that clinical problem but to always be attacking mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. clinical problem yeah mm-hmm. so it's it's more of a mindset yeah and i think uh, again as a if a prospective grad student should be perhaps looking very critically and, and, and quite frankly, just explicitly ask their advisor or their prospective advisor, what, what is the goal of all this? And is is there a time where we're going to get to a point where this might go into a clinic where there might be a clinical trial or there might be, you know, whatever. And I think, I think that's important. I think that is a fundamental philosophical decision that an advisor makes. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes the students are going to follow what, what the advisors lead is.
3: Right. I do agree with you. But to a certain point, like this is where I might, I might disagree with you on that one. I think, like, yeah, while an advisor does carry a specific, like, uh, like a weight in that decision, I also think the student, they have the responsibility for, they have a responsibility to themselves to actually carry on uh, what, why they're here for. Ultimately, it's the, you know, there's a lot of writing involved in research, regardless of what the type of research that is. And that comes with an ability to make arguments. And the ability to make arguments carries on to communication within academia. And also, I would like to believe, you know, I'd like to be an optimist here and think it carries on to even areas outside of academia. It's just the language is different. And so how how can a student realize that they have the ability to take their communication skills, the arguments that they make, and apply it, I think, like, a more of... Developing, uh, and I'm going to quote one of uh, Adam Grant's uh, books here, I think again, the scientist mentality in a student. How can you, like, how can an advisor develop that? And also, how can a student develop that for themselves? Because it's this is a PhD, at least, is viewed to be more something that you're developing. Like you're working towards something, yes, with guidance but and training, of course, but there's also like an inherent uh, drive to it
1: yeah I, th- I think that's a really good question. you make a very good point um, as well and I think that um, as as a project manager, let me say it that way mm-hmm. right because this is both what I've done in my academic role as I've run a lab for now twenty five years I've run a research lab and uh, and then also in my startup you know companies um, what i found is that it's sort of like driving a car, right? So when you're looking at the process, it's driving a car, right? So when you're driving a car, let's say you're driving a car at night, mm-hmm. okay? You're looking at what's right in front of you on the road. Mm-hmm. You got to make sure that there's no pothole, that no animal jumps out, you know, whatever. You got to be looking right directly in front of you. Mm-hmm. You also have to be looking up ahead to know whether the road is going to veer to the right or to the left, you know, or whatever, and what's coming, speed limit, other traffic, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to know, okay, in 100 miles, I'm going to make a left turn and, you know, to Albuquerque you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you sort of have these, these three views. There's the immediate view of what's happening right now. There's what's coming in the short term. And then there's the really long-term view yeah. also. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of students have a tendency to look at the very short term, what's happening right under the headlights, mm-hmm. and maybe to look in the midterm, right? What am I going to be doing three months from now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps to answer your question is what I would love to see every grad student doing is also looking at the navigation, knowing what the long-term goals, Mm -hmm. and it gets back to what we were just talking about. Is there a specific clinical problem that we're trying to solve as Mm -hmm. a biomedical engineer? Mm -hmm. And, um, and if you, if you ignore those long-term goals, then everything is just about what are today's results going to mean and how does that affect what I'm doing tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. true. If yeah. grad students, students, anybody, focuses on that, because you have to, can't hit a pothole, then it doesn't matter how far you are from <laughs> <Turkey. clears throat> But if you focus both on that and you can also keep your, your eye on the prize, mm-hmm. which is the longer-term goals, and I think inherently it maybe changes some of the decisions that you make in the short term, knowing what that long-term goal is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I would love to see is every grad student being able to have those different views, those different perspectives, and to have their advisors working with them to make sure mm-hmm. that they have those different perspectives.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. To kind of circle back, based on what you said and the analogy that you just used, I kind of want to circle back to the idea of communication and to wrap up on that. Uh, the long-term, like, and, you know, I would want you to comment on this, the Idea of a long-term goal that you're working towards in a research environment is ultimately what you would be able to be, what you would be able to communicate with people who are completely outside your field, like lawyers or regulatory agencies. In addition to some, of course, some technical like middle and uh, more closer goals or anything like that. But learning how to navigate through these three different views is how you can communicate properly with all these bodies or, like, uh, different agencies of some sort.
1: Yeah, that, that's, it's a really excellent point. And, you know, the communications part is so important, mm-hmm. right? Let me give you an example. We'll talk about two different paths here, right? So one is you're in academics, mm-hmm. all right? So if, if I'm in academics, I'm writing grant proposals. Who's reviewing my grant proposals? Well, right. other biomedical engineers, for mm-hmm. the most part. Yeah. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, physicians, uh, you know, scientists, whatever, but but they may not have the same expertise that I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my, for me personally, as you guys know, my specific expertise is orthopedic biomechanics. And even further, if we drill down to the very point of the pencil, it's in spine biomechanics, and then I do orthopedic trauma as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So when I write a grant proposal, let's say it's going to be something related to treatments for low back pain. That's going to get reviewed in a study section by other biomedical engineers who might not know anything about back pain. They mm-hmm. might not know anything about spine anatomy. They might not know, have a strong background in biomechanics either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even though those are other biomedical engineers, that's still my field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I still have to be able to communicate to them what my uh, expertise is, what is novel and unique about what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and what I'm proposing to do. And the challenge there is that you have to make them understand, even if they don't have the expertise, but you also have to convince them down to the nitty gritty detail right. mm-hmm. that you are the expert. Mm-hmm. And that can be really challenging to communicate that. Mm-hmm. right? And I, I, what I talk about and what I think in my mind is a funnel, right? You start yeah. off very broad mm-hmm. so that everybody understands what you're saying and what you're doing, and then you have to get more and more and more technical, more focused, more specific, right? Mm-hmm. That's to another biomedical engineer, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right Now, if you step out of that, and let's say now I'm going to, talking to a clinician, mm-hmm. or I've got a reviewer that's a clinician, that's a, a whole different language, yep. a different way to communicate with them. And that's different mm-hmm. than if I'm explaining to my aunt who works in a flower shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. right? And, and if you think about it, if you're going to do research, let's say the research involves animals, you've got to, that's got to be approved by an IACUC committee, Institutional yep. Animal Care and Use Committee, right? There has to be a community person, a lay person on that committee. They have to understand what your research is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to explain it to them, let alone to a lawyer, let alone to, you know, an administrator or mm-hmm. anything like that. Right. So there's a lot of different levels. That, now, let's, let's go on the industry side, okay? So now you're in industry. You may have to explain this not just to your boss mm-hmm. who probably has a lot of expertise in your area, but you may have to explain what you're proposing to do to people in other groups. Mm-hmm. You may have to explain what you're doing to somebody in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's hey. a whole different <laughs> language, <Yes>. right? <laughs> manufacturing is a whole different language. GD and T, you know, the, the way drawings are notated yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. You may have regulatory people that you're talking to. And again, the the lawyers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you need to and, and it's Again, if you were talking about um, something that's patentable, mm-hmm. intellectual property attorneys, right? Now, most intellectual property attorneys. Now, if you work for a big company, they usually have in-house counsel, right? But otherwise, you're paying by the hour.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So if you can't explain to an attorney in a way that they can understand what a spine implant looks like or something like that, you're paying them by the hour. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very expensive (laughs) hour. It's very expensive to figure out the most efficient way to communicate these things. So for all different facets, whether you think, oh, I don't need to learn anybody else's language or to communicate because I'm going to be writing grant proposals to other biomedical engineers. Okay, let me ask you guys, right? You've all been in graduate school for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many seminars have you gone to where you had absolutely no idea what the person was talking about? <laughs> Too many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm, I'm talking to block about. I them from my head. <laughs> right, we're biomedical engineers. Yep. They're biomedical engineers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yet I would say it's the exception that somebody gives such a good introduction and overview mm-hmm. that I don't get lost yeah. during the whole thing, right? Yeah. Well, you're not recording you this part where I admit that I get lost during seminars, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the communications, you know, it's super important. And mm-hmm. what I have done over the years with my graduate students uh, and my undergrads as well mm-hmm. is we'll be in the middle of a weekly meeting. We do a weekly lab meeting. And I will say, Nate, remind me, what's your project all about? <laughs> And, and we'll get an explanation. And usually it takes a few weeks or a few times before somebody, somebody's comfortable doing that. And now yeah. I'll say, Nate, remind me what your project is about, but pretend I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Mm,
2: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Nate, remind me what your project is about, but now pretend that I'm your aunt who works in a flower shop, <laughs> you know, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And the whole idea is that you're explaining exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're communicating it in a different way so that whoever your audience is can understand i think that takes practice yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. whether it's to other biomedical engineers or whether it's to your aunt who works in a flower shop (laughs) super
0: important
2: yeah love it
0: all right uh any any last second thoughts before we wrap this one up
1: haven't i talked enough already
0: (laughs) (laughs) all righty so that's gonna wrap us up for season two episode three of the phd cast if you're interested in a specific topic or have questions you'd like us to answer please email us at cbisgpa at rpi.edu or message us on social media via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And with that, we hope that you know your proximal from distal and that all of your differences are significant. Have a good one.